We all wrestle with identity. Who we are. We, um, we struggle to figure out our, our place in the world and how do we find significance and value. And of course, our culture is continually bombarding us with messages about that. You see it all around us as people declare my identity is in my sexuality. My identity is in how much I possess. My identity is in how popular I am. My identity is in what I can do, who I know. The common and the common thing about all of the ways in which we tend to identify ourselves is that they're all rooted in us. They're all about us. And the problem with that is that we are so imperfect and fragile that all it takes is a word from someone and we feel our identity slipping away. All it takes is a downturn of the economy and we feel our identity slipping away. All it takes is is, uh, enough commercial messages and we find our identity slipping away. And Paul is talking to the Galatian Christians and saying, you've got your identity in the wrong place. You had it right. You had it in Christ. But you have been, you've been tricked. In fact, he begins by saying, you foolish Galatians, who has tricked you? Who's bewitched you? Who, ha- who has turned the tables on you? How could you be so foolish to believe that and to buy into that? When you know it's Christ. This group, probably this group of of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem have come to the churches in Galatia and are saying to them, you're not really identified with Christ because you're not Jewish enough. You're Gentiles and until you you become Jewish, until you embrace all the law, all of the rules and the forms of the Jewish faith, you cannot truly be Christian. You cannot truly be the the identity of Christ. God in Christ that you were created to be. You've got to do this first. As Paul says, the problem with that is that not only is it foolish, but it leads to being cursed by God. It puts you under the curse of God. And we read that in Malachi. It's a very harsh passage. You almost sense that that, uh, Paul could have written those words in Malachi because the harshness of that passage is revealed the harshness of this passage of saying to, to the believers, saying to and Malachi to the people of Israel, what is wrong with you? you? You had it, and you're going the opposite way. You're thinking about just yourselves. You're not thinking about who you are in Christ. And you're putting yourselves under the curse of God. Why would you do that? And the reason we know we're, we're heading in that direction is because none of us are perfect. I mean, he says, Paul says, if you're going to follow the law, okay, fine. You just need to understand, if you follow one part of the law and that's your identity, you have to follow every single part of the law. And I could almost see him stepping back saying, let's see you try that. Nobody's that good. And he says, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that you need. Now, he does say there are some benefits to the law. You almost are surprised that he would say that because he's so emphatic against it. 
But he says there are a couple of benefits to the law. One of them is found in verse 19. And he says the, the law shows us, reveals to us when we're sinning. And he, and he says in, in verse 19, why, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. And he's saying the thing about the law that's good is that it will show you when you are doing wrong. It is, it is something that will help you see this is not right. You need to change it. Now, he doesn't mean that if God hadn't given the law, people wouldn't be responsible for the consequences of their sin. What he's saying is you've been sinning all along. You've been living with the consequences of those sins. Now, let me reveal that to you. Let me help you understand what's happening. It's, it's like if you're watching someone running through a field. They've never been to this place before, and they're running through a field as fast as they can. But you know at the end of that field is a, is a cavern. It's, a, it's a, a, a chasm that they will fall into if they don't stop. Now, if, if nobody warns them, they're going to fall into, the ca- into this canyon. But if you put up warning signs, danger, stop, there's a canyon ahead, and they keep running, that's their own fault. And Paul is saying the law is like the danger signs. The law is saying to us, look, you're going this direction. It's not healthy. It's not good. You need to be doing these things. And, and in that way, the law is a good thing for Israel to follow. And the second thing he says the law is good for is that it is a protection for us. And he talks in verse 23 about, about it being a guardian for us, a protection for us. And, and the, the law is a means of helping us, sort of like if you continue the, the, the metaphor of, of signs, it's like guardrails for us. And it helps us, it protects us from the danger of life and take, making decisions that are going to lead us down a path of destruction. It's what we do with our children all the time. When our children are young, we make all kinds of rules for them. Don't do that. Don't touch that. You have to go to bed this time. You have to eat this. And we're emphatic about it. And it's not because we're angry with them. It's because we care about them. And they, but they have no clue why we're doing it. If you think back to when you were a small child, you probably were frustrated and even angry with your parents because they made all of these rules. But as you turn the table and you become a parent, it makes more sense. But you can't see it when you're a child. But we do those things. And so when our child begins to touch a hot stove, we yell at them to stop. And it's not because, hey, I made a rule about touching, don't touching hot, hot stoves and don't be breaking my rule. It's because we don't want them to burn their hand. And if they're about to run out into a busy street and we yell at them and we are angry with them, it's not because we're thinking, hey, I made the rule about not running in the street and you better not break my rules. It's because we don't want them to be injured. And Paul says that's what the law does for us, is it protects us. And this idea of being a guardian is also the, sometimes it's translated uh, schoolmaster, but it's the word pedagogue. You know, we get the word pedagogy from that. And it's a sense of learning, but it's not the teacher. In that scenario of the ancient Roman culture, the, uh, a, a child of an affluent family had a, a slave assigned to them. And the slave's job was not to teach the child. The slave's job was to make sure the child got to school. 
And the slave's job was to make sure the child got home from school and that the child did their homework and the child went to bed when they were supposed to so they were ready tomorrow to learn again. The, the, the job of the guardian was to create the most productive atmosphere possible so that the child could learn from the teacher. And Paul says that's what the law does for us. It is intended to help us, to direct us, but it is not the end of itself. Because Paul says, what we're really looking for is not a life of the law guarding us and making rules to protect us. We're looking for a life with the Holy Spirit to bless us and to live in the promises of the Holy Spirit. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is that he moves us from a life of immaturity to a life of maturity. When you read chapter 4, the beginning few verses, he says, Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much more better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when Christ came, he adopted us as his children. And we have freedom. And we're no longer children who haven't gotten the inheritance. We are moving, the Holy Spirit comes to us so that we can live our lives not as spiritually immature children tied to the rules, but as spiritually mature children who have freedom. I, I used, uh, for a long time, I have thought that the, the most spiritual people, the holiest people, are the ones who do the best job obeying the rules. Paul is saying the most spiritual people, the most holy people, are the ones who live their lives not needing the rules. The more holy we are, the less we need the rules. Because the Holy Spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit controls us, and we don't need rules to do that for us. We let the Holy Spirit do that. And that's freedom. But so often, we are content to live with the rules. And we think it's the rules that make us free. It's the rules that enslave us. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us free. John and Helena, and it's sort of a family effort, we're teaching our granddaughter Emma to walk. And she's, you know, she's making some progress, but she right now wants to, you know, for a long time it was hanging on to both hands as we walked behind her, and then it began one hand, and now she's basically just holding on to one finger. And she's making progress as she moves along. And, and that's exactly what we should do, because she's 16 months old, or whatever. But wouldn't it be weird if, when she went to high school, one of us was with her walking along the hallway, and she's holding our finger... I mean, that's when they start bringing in the psychiatrist to examine our family because they're wondering what in the world's going on with this group of people. See, our goal is not for her to be so immature that she never lets go of our finger. Our goal is that she walks on her own and she runs and she plays and she has the freedom to live her life. 
And the goal is not to keep her confined to rules. The goal is that she becomes such a mature adult that she lives, she doesn't need the rules. It becomes innate in her as an adult about it's not wise to touch a hot stove. It's not right, right, wise to run out into the street. And that's God's desire for us. We wouldn't live with the rules confining us, but we live, out, we live beyond them. That's what Jesus says, that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. It's not that the rules don't have a place, but we want to move past them. We want to be more mature than, than rules will allow us to be. We want to be living the freedom of the Holy Spirit in us. And to let him guide us and let him direct us. And when that happens we find that it drastically alters our relationship with each other. We start living with other people in ways that when we're bound to the law, we, are, we cannot live. And when you get to the end of chapter 3, Paul says, because we are in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or free because we are one in Christ. And he prefaces that by saying, when you are baptized, you put on your baptismal clothes of equality. Because in baptism, we are saying, I want to have the mind and the heart and the spirit of Christ. When you're tied to rules and laws, they're always about who's more valuable and who's less valuable. Who has more significance and who has less significance? Because it's all about judging who's doing a better job of following the rules. But in the Holy Spirit, we're all one in Christ. And we see each other the way Christ does. And it means that it begins to break down all of the barriers that our culture and, quite frankly, the church sometimes creates. And we no longer think about we're a better race of people than they are. We no longer think we're a better gender than they are. Our occupation is better than theirs. We're one in Christ. And those things that divide us begin to shatter and get broken down. And we see everyone being people of significance. And worth and value. It is interesting that Paul introduces here. I mean, it would have made sense if he had said, "Put on your baptism robes because there are no more Jews and Gentiles," and moved on, because he's, that's what he's been talking about. But in this passage, as someone pointed out, he he isn't he doesn't just talk about Jews and Gentiles. He talks about males and females. And he talks about slaves and people who are free. And I think the reason he does that is because he's trying to help us understand that the Holy Spirit in us breaks down all of the barriers that we tend to put up. All of the ways in which we judge one another who's worthy and who's less worthy. And that means in the church, everyone is accepted. Everyone is a child of God. Everyone is a part of the kingdom who has come to Christ. And there's not who's more significant or less significant. We are all significant in Christ. Because we're children of God. You're a child of God. 
you're a child of God. And it's not just how we view other people, it's, it's how we view ourselves. So much of the time, we wrestle with our identity, we wrestle with who we are, because we have heard so many messages from people that if you are, quite frankly, based on what Paul writes, if you are a Gentile or a woman or a slave, you're less significant to the kingdom. And sometimes the church makes decisions and operates in a way that reinforces that idea. And Paul is saying that is wrong. It's wrong. We're all one in Christ. We're all equally significant in Christ because we are all children of God in Christ. And so when he gets to the end of chapter 4, he says, that's why we can all cry out, Abba, Father. Because we're children of God. We tend to have, we have a tendency to see God in, in one of two ways. And they're both true. They're both biblical. God, that God is, is a judge and that God is a father. And often one of those predominates our thinking. When you look through the history of, of the church, when God as judge is the predominant way of thinking, it's pretty difficult not to see ourselves in relationship to God in the, in the shape of a legal system. And God is sort of becomes a distant kind of judge. But when God is father, we're family. And, and in family, we love each other and we forgive each other and, and, and we have show grace toward each other and we irritate each other and we struggle with each other. But we're always connected to family. And Paul says, here's the primary image you need of God. He's a father and you're his child and he has great plans for you. And you need to embrace those. The call of the kingdom, the call of the gospel, the call of Jesus is not do more, measure up, obey the law, get your life together. The call of the kingdom and the gospel and Jesus is trust me. Believe in me. Receive what I'm offering you. Have faith. Let, the, let my grace be what drives your life and your identity. It always comes back to faith as a response to the grace of God. And so Paul writes in chapter 4, just the right time, God sent his son. Not because people were so good, but because God is. And because Christ comes, we can believe and have faith and trust him. I didn't count the number of times Paul mentions the word faith in this chapter, but I'm going to guess it's at least a dozen times. It's always about faith. That's why he goes back to Abraham and he says, look, you want to say Abraham is the great, great uh, 
a person of faith, a great man of faith, you do realize, he's saying to these people who are embracing the law, that Abraham lived 430 years before there was ever even a law. It's about faith. It's about believing that God is who he says he is. And because of that, we can believe that we are who God says we are. Children of his. We're his beloved children. Sometimes when you hear the word Abba, it sort of it, it elicits a, a mindset of a tiny a toddler trying to, to first speak and saying Dada. And maybe it is that. But when I read this passage, the impression I'm getting is that Paul is saying that kind of, of intimacy, because it is a term of the deepest intimacy between a child and a parent. That kind of intimacy is so much deeper between an adult child and a parent than a little child and a parent. A little child can't really comprehend how much their parent loves them. They can't understand all the ways in which a parent expresses that love and and lives in love and all the sacrifices that a parent may make for that child. But an adult child can get it. We understand the sacrifices that our parents make for us. We can have conversations that are deep and intimate and sometimes heated, but we love each other and we're working things out together and we care for each other and we're there for each other. And that's the kind of intimacy that God wants with us. Yes, he will lead us along as a little child, but a lot of that has to do with rules that we need. But his ultimate goal is that we are children of God in that mature adult sense. That creates a a significantly deeper kind of trust than you could ever have as a little toddler. This is what God wants for us. This is who we are in Christ. We're children of God. And we, are, we just need to claim our inheritance and live in the truth of our inheritance. As we come to this table this morning, it is a vivid image of what God has done for us in Christ who went to the cross. It is also a vivid image of what God has promised to us in Christ on the day when Christ ushers in his kingdom. And we will experience the kind of intimacy with God that we have only dreamed about on this earth. But as we come, we come as children of the Heavenly Father who loves us and calls us to trust Him and to embrace the inheritance, the identity that is ours in Him. Father, thank You for your grace to us in Christ. We recognize that it's not because we're good. It's because you are. Give us the grace to embrace your wondrous gift. And to know that we are your children.
We pray this through Christ. Amen.